Uh, looks like this may be one of our last warm days, so I hope everybody's enjoying the, the Indian summer or whatever it is they call it, because it looks like we got some frigid stuff coming. Uh, anyway, before we look at our text today, I wanted to revisit. I saw some quizzical looks last week. Now, I'm not, I'm not unused to quizzical looks when I speak, if any of you understand what that means. <laughs> Uh, but I wanted to revisit some things that I said on last week just for the sake of clarification. Uh, first being that sanctification is a work of God, and as such, it is guaranteed to occur. Okay, It is going to happen, as it is God who wills in us and works through us for his good pleasure. Now, that being said, as I thought about some of my statements last week, uh, it occurred to me that I might have given the impression that we can earn our sanctification. Nothing could be further from the truth. Truth is, uh, what we can do is, based on our response to Paul's commands that he gives us in verses 12 and 13, we can either hasten our sanctification or we can delay it, uh, given, given how we respond to that. If we refuse to allow sin to reign in our mortal body by refusing to present our members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but rather present ourselves to God and our members to God for use in righteousness, then our sanctification will be swift, it will be sure, and we will be able to stand before Christ unashamed on the day that he returns for his bride. Now, on the other hand, if we instead choose to wander around our palaces, uh, if you remember King David, okay, with no real spiritual goals, and if we even choose to dabble in the world just like the heathen do, or have as our number one goal being to placate our flesh and serve ourselves and only seek the kingdom, uh, with the time and the talents that are left over from all of that self-gratification, then undoubtedly our sanctification is not only going to be delayed, but the fruit that inevitably comes from those decisions could very well be, as in the case of King David, the destruction of our friends and our families and our reputations and all the such things that we hold dear. Okay, Suffice to say that such things will not cause us to lose our position if we are truly in Christ. But the losses we do face will cause unimaginable pain, up to and including the time when we are not able to stand before our Lord unashamed, as Paul uh, exhorts us to do on several occasions. Okay. So, now hopefully having clarified that, we can move on to our text for today. We are in... Uh, Verses 15 through 18 of chapter 6 in the book of Romans. <clears throat> he says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 
and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So he starts this off with what then? This what then follows what Paul has just said in verse 14, where he says that sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Again, this is not an imaginary question, uh, as we already stated way back in verse 1. Uh, history proves that this kind of questioning was being asked in Paul's day. Not only asked, but Paul was being regularly attacked along these very lines, as he was attacked for many other things, simply because of his determination to remain loyal to the whole truth. There were two main types of persons criticizing Paul for his teaching, and the same two types are still among us today. The first type were the Jewish legalists, whom Paul refers to as Judaizers. Uh, these are the moralists, of which I used to be one, as you all well know, and whose interest in the Christian faith is, is exclusively moral and ethical. <clears throat> Their objection, much as mine once was, went something like this. If you remove the law, then there will be nothing left to tell mankind what to do or how to live. Not only that, there will be nothing left to restrain men from doing whatever wickedness they so please. How will anyone know what is right and what is wrong? The laws and the commandments of God are what keep people in line. If you teach this, then you will be encouraging people to live in lawlessness. Okay? Now, that's a very popular view in this present day, sometimes referred to as public school religion, uh, that teaches you how to be a good little boy or a good little girl. Okay? Teaches you what to do and what not to do. That Christianity has the purpose, the main purpose of Christianity is to improve the state of society. Uh, there's huge, a huge push of late from the post-mill camp from, for something called Christian nationalism, if y'all are familiar with that, uh, which is nothing more than this on a national scale. Second objection is the exact opposite of the first. This comes from the people who are the antinomians. These are the people who say that it really does not matter what you do because you are under grace. Once saved, always saved. Everybody's heard that phrase before, right? Um, and therefore, what you do or don't do is of no consequence. They turn the grace of God into lawlessness or lasciviousness, as Jude says in, in his epistle. There are many warnings against such people all throughout uh, the New Testament. Warning the, warnings to those who teach that man under grace is free to indulge in sin. The majority of the preachers in this very county, simply because of the fact that they are not reformed, will inevitably fall into one of those two categories. The fact is that the true preaching of the gospel, while it does expose us to this danger of leading people to say such things, in actuality and because of the work of the Holy Spirit, the true preaching of the gospel is a safeguard against this danger. That is what Paul is determined to prove here. That's why he says, in effect, God forbid that you should say that kind of thing. 
If you say that kind of thing, it only proves that you do not understand what I have been saying. It means you do not understand the gospel. And so while the true preaching of the gospel may expose us to the charges that were laid against Paul by those who did not understand it, at the same time, it guards against those charges. So the point being made here is that the evangelistic message has to be a complete message. It cannot be a message that calls for a mere decision or a vague repeat-this-prayer-after-me type message. A true evangelistic gospel message must always contain the truth about man, the truth about God, and the truth of the Son as the only hope for the reconciliation of the two. So anyway, he continues, Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? So the point I want to make here, and if you get nothing else from this lesson this morning, is the right meaning of the word sin as it is used here. It means deliberate and persistent sin. It means continuing in a state of sin. It means persisting in sin. does not mean the occasional falling into sin. The original Greek word is perpeteo, which means to walk around. Okay, It means how you walk through your life. Um, it means a style of life of sin. It means the same thing as it means in 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, uh, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. King James Version unfortunately translated this as committeth sin. So King James says, whoever, may, whoever commits sin is of the devil. Now that's a tough one to swallow right there, all right? Uh, so it led many, including myself, to the point of believing that sinless perfection was the only acceptable response to God, all right? And knowing that we are not sinless, uh, that causes quite a dilemma. How can we be saved if we are of the devil? See where the problem comes in, okay? Uh, see why I want you to understand the true meaning of that word? Otherwise, see, if we don't understand the true meaning of that word, this is what leads people to get baptized over and over and over. Uh, renew their confessions over and over, rededicate their lives over and over. All right? That's what all these revival meetings are about, is to get people to just do this same, get resaved over and over and over. And there is never any peace to be found in that. If the word sin here means one single act of sin, then there is no such thing as a Christian and never has been. What John teaches and what Paul is teaching is that a man who is born of God does not go on living or walking in a state of unrepentant and willful sin. <clears throat> what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law? Now we've gone over and over the term law, which simply means that a man under the law must justify himself by his own works. 
If you keep the whole thing and never fail in even one aspect, then you shall live. Paul says here once again that we are no longer under that law. Our salvation is entirely of grace and by grace. That's the total of what he's saying there. And then comes his refutation again, just like in verse 2, Meginoito. It is utterly unthinkable. It is monstrous. This should be plain to everyone. God forbid that anyone should think such a thing. And now he's going to give us the why it is unthinkable. It starts with one of his favorite phrases. He says, do you not know? When I first came to realize the error of my ways, I read this phrase as being, are you too stupid to understand this? Okay, this is how I read to myself when I'm reading this. All right, are you too stupid to understand this? Okay, do you not know? <clears throat> In other words, this is general logical knowledge. This is just common sense. That's all it is. This is not even about Christianity. This is just common sense, says Paul. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. Slaves. What he's saying here is that a man is either a slave to sin or else he is a slave to grace. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Those are the two options, okay? All of mankind is in slavery. All of us. The lost people are slaves of sin, which leads to death, all right? The redeemed are slaves of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Those that have been truly redeemed are literally slaves to obedience. How ridiculous, how monstrous to suggest that there is anything in the Christian message that would lead a man to live a life of sin. The fact that we are no longer under law does not mean that we are lawless. It means that we are under obedience. As a Christian, as Christians, we are never lawless. We're not under law, but that does not mean that we are free and antinomian and do not recognize the law at all. The opposite of sin to which we have, to which we have died is obedience, which leads to righteousness. Notice something very important there. What's the opposite of death? Life, okay? Why did he not say obedience which leads to life? Well, that would be a contradiction of his entire message thus far. He says, because the wages of sin is death, but what is it that leads to life? The free gift of God, okay? Not obedience that leads to, the, leads to life, okay? It is the free gift of God that leads to life. Obedience does not lead to life. The free gift of God is eternal life. Obedience does not lead to life. It leads to righteousness, the kind of righteous life that God would have us to live. Obedience leads to sanctification, and it leads to righteousness. Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. It is the righteousness to which obedience leads. 
That's it. There are several principles at work here being taught here. Firstly, if we give ourselves over to any power, then we become slaves of that power. The chief characteristic of the slave owner is being a totalitarian power. When we give ourselves over to such a power, then we are nothing but the slave of that power. The power is what decides what I do and what decides what I am. Secondly, there are only two totalitarian powers. One is sin and the other is obedience. In Adam or in Christ, there are only two positions. That's been Paul's message all the way back to chapter 5. There's no middle position. It is either a slave to sin or a slave to obedience. Those are the only two options. Thirdly, these two powers are entirely different and completely opposed to one another. This is the most important part of Paul's argument. They're the complete opposite of one another. It's the difference between the devil and God, the difference between heaven and hell. It is lawlessness and rebellion on the one hand, or righteousness and truth on the other hand. That's the difference. Eternal opposites by their very nature. One produces death, the other produces righteousness. Okay? Fourth point being made here is that it is, it is obviously impossible to be slaves to both of these masters at the same time. Man cannot be a slave to grace and still live in sin. It is utterly impossible. They are mutually exclusive and they are contradictory to one another. Jesus himself said that no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. It is utterly impossible. Fifth principle is that we proclaim who our master is and what our position is by what we do. Not what we say, but by what we do. He's being accused of saying that we are under grace, therefore we can sin all we want. Utterly impossible, says Paul. I have proved to you that it is impossible. Show me a man who is living in sin, and I will show you a man that is not under grace. He cannot be. He could not go on living in sin if he were under grace. His style of life shows that he is under sin and under the power of sin. We proclaim that we are what we are, finally and fully, not by what we say, but by what we do. Let's never forget this. Much of the teaching of Jesus, if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, much of the teaching of Christ revolves around this very fact that we proclaim what we are finally and fully, not by what we say, but by what we do. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 16, and we're going to go down through about 23. It's Jesus teaching, and he says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, 
but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is Paul's way of quoting that teaching of Jesus Christ. He says, I do not care what a man's profession may be. If he is continuing in sin, then he is not under grace, but under sin. He is a child of the devil, regardless of what he might profess. Good and evil do not mix, cannot mix. John chapter 8, verses 30 and 32, Jesus was addressing some of the Jews who claimed to believe in him. That's that word claimed right there, okay? He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, if they truly believed in him, what would their response have been to that? Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord, okay? But that was not their response. What was their response? They answered him and says, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them accordingly in verse 34. He said, Jesus answered them, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. See, it doesn't matter what a man says. You can brag about being one of Abraham's children, as the Jews did. That was their only claim to fame, as it were. Brag about being a Christian. Brag about being born again. Brag about being spiritual. So many words. Jesus says, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Because my words find no place in you. It doesn't matter what you claim. If Christ's words have no place in you, then you are not his. That's as simple as we can put it. He says, I speak of what I have seen with my father. Uh, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So man's true nature is always expressed in his actions. Being a Christian does not merely mean that you say that you believe in Jesus Christ. It 
means that you are born again. You must be born again. Remember, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be. It's not an option. You must be born again. It means that you are in Christ. There is a new nature in you, and that new nature must show itself. It shows itself. How does it show itself? It shows itself in obedience and righteousness and holy living. It does not show itself by continuing in sin. Paul urges all who read this to try to think straight. Get your head on straight. Think about this. Warns us against being slow of wit and and lacking logic. Says we must realize that if a man continues in sin, then he is a slave of sin. Simple as that. Now, the Apostle John is even more blunt. So Paul's a little bit, you know, he kind of holds back a little bit here and there. He doesn't want to push the envelope too much. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 4. John says, uh, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a what? A liar. And the truth is not in him. That is the way that the New Testament teaches holiness and sanctification. There is no mollycoddling. There is no words of comfort offered to those who are hypocritical. No, in fact, says John... John says, you're a bald-faced liar, and that's all I have to say to you. I'm done. This is exactly what Paul is telling us in the same, in a, in a little less harsh fashion, okay? You are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to obedience. Regardless of your profession, regardless of your knowledge, regardless of your understanding, if it is not producing the fruit of righteousness, it is a lie and it is worth nothing. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Don't you know that a man proclaims whose slave he is by the way in which he lives and behaves? By their fruit you shall know them. Now, this is not justification by works. This is not prescriptive. Remember, we talked about this before. This is not prescriptive. This is a description of of the man who has been born of God, born again by the grace of God. Verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Perhaps giving us the clearest definition found in the New Testament as to what exactly it means to be a Christian. Thank God, says Paul, I am in a happy position concerning you Christians in Rome, as well as us who are reading this 2,000 years later, okay, that all of you who were once slaves of sin, but you are no longer in that position. That is no longer who you are. You are new creatures. You have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching that was given to you. Thank God. It is a relief and a blessing to know that you guys are all right. A blessing to know that you are in an entirely new position. 
And then he gives us this wonderful definition of what it really and truly looks like to be a real, live, born-again Christian. He gives us three principles that define us as Christians. First principle is a Christian is, is one that has undergone a drastic change. He says, you once were that, but now you are this over here. Okay, that's the drastic change. You used to be that, but now you're this. Nobody is born a Christian. In order to become a Christian, there must be of necessity some great change that occurs. That change is you must be born again. Regeneration is essential. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The change is that great. It's not merely enough for us to know that we have been changed. It's the need to understand the magnitude of that change. It's a change that affects all of a man's character. He says you become obedient. That's your will being changed. Okay? Uh, he says you become obedient from the heart. That's your emotions being changed. And he says to the standard of teaching, and there is your mind being changed. Right? Your mind, your heart, and your will all changed at once in this new life. That is a Christian. Uh, so many religions, so many cults, whatever, that focus on just one of these. Okay, They pick one out that they like the best and they focus on it. And if you've been to as many churches as I've been to, you get to see them all. Okay? Pentecostals uh, that only focus on the emotions in the heart. Right? It's all emotional. The moralists that focus only on the will. And the intellectuals that are only concerned with knowledge and the mind. All right? You get to they, they, all of those are all around us. All right? True regeneration involves the whole of our personalities. Cannot be converted in mind only. Cannot be converted in heart only. And you cannot be converted in your will only. If you are truly converted and born again, then all of you is born again. We also see that this change is so great that it involves a complete change of ownership. It says you used to be slaves of sin. You were owned by sin. Man is not born neutral, waiting for that age of accountability when he gets to decide who he wants to belong to. Okay? We were born slaves of sin, as we have stated over and over and over as we've gone through this book. Okay? We were owned by the one that Jesus refers to as the strong man. Okay? We were owned by the strong man. Until one stronger came and defeated him and took us from him and made us his very own special possession. We are not our own. We are not Satan's. We were bought with a price, and we belong to a new master. The first principle of a Christian is we have undergone a drastic change. Second principle, he tells us how this change comes about. What is it that transfers us from slavery to sin on the one hand to slavery to God on the other hand? Paul refers to it as the standard of teaching meaning the pattern of doctrine or the form of doctrine. 
standard of teaching to which you were committed, if the change that it produces is as great as we know it to be, this teaching that these Romans had already believed and, and that had wrought this change, then what is the standard of teaching to which he is referring? So let's look first at what it is not. <clears throat> it's obvious from what Paul has been saying so clearly thus far that this standard is not merely a message of forgiveness only. There are those that go by soccer game church where I used to pastor and have on their sign out there says somebody brings up your sin tell them Jesus dropped the charges that's not what happened he didn't drop the charges okay he took those on himself it's not about forgiveness only there are those that think that forgiveness is the sole message of evangelism you just call people to come to Christ and you offer them forgiveness call on them to make a decision right here and right now and then later you can learn the more deeper doctrines and the more profound truths or whatever. In most evangelical meetings, there is only this simple message. Come to Jesus, decide for him, ask him into your heart. If you want forgiveness, then here it is. And as we look at this verse, we can see that such teaching is not only dangerous, it is also very unbiblical. That's not the message that these Roman Christians had believed. Otherwise, he could have not have drawn the results he tells us from uh, about from it. But what then is it? It is the entire doctrine that he has been laying out for us from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through till now. The entire doctrine. The standard of teaching that they heard was the complete, full doctrine of the gospel of God. The truth about man and sin under the wrath of a holy God. Romans chapter 1, 16 through 18, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Why is this necessary? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You cannot skate around the most essential part of the gospel message. Men cannot be saved unless and until they know what they are being saved from. This doctrine of sin is a vital part of the standard of teaching that had produced such amazing results as Paul is announcing to these Roman Christians. But the doctrine of sin is just one part of the complete message. There's also the utter hopelessness of all human, human effort to gain salvation. He spends, he spends most of chapters 1, 2, and 3 making that plain, that there is no hope in us doing it on our own. No one can deliver themselves, neither Jew nor Gentile. Nothing you say, nothing you do, no ritual you perform can in any way get you even one breath closer to salvation. The very best, most righteous thing you have ever done apart from Christ is what? Filthy rags. 
Okay? That's what it is in the eyes of a holy God. This is all part of evangelism. The whole thing. No storytelling. No emotionalism. No manipulation. Not 47 courses of just as I am and an altar call. Okay? Those things... None of those things can bring a man to the knowledge of the truth. The only thing that God has decreed to bring about regeneration is the preaching of the whole gospel. This standard of teaching, this truth from God's word, that's what he's referring to here. That's what they heard was the whole thing. The truth that even though man's condition appears hopeless and desperate, God in his mercy has provided a way of escape. What is the only way of, of escape? Chapter 3, verses 23 and 20, 24. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So that's the message. That is the standard of teaching to which they had been committed. That is the instantaneous and immediate agency used to produce this great change. What is the ultimate agency? He says the standard of teaching is the message that was used. Okay? What is it or who is it that uses it? Listen to it again. Verse 17, he says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. What does that word committed mean? It means that these Roman Christians were handed over or delivered. My daughter's a psychiatrist and she's, one of her main jobs is IVC. You know what that means? Involuntary committed, commission, Okay. People that uh, have such mental problems that they have to be institutionalized. That's what committed here means, all right? means that these Roman Christians were handed over or, or were delivered to this standard of teaching. Now to clarify, there is a standard, and it is God's standard. He says you have been delivered over to that standard. You have been committed to to that standard. You have been conformed to that standard, made into a copy of that standard. Who did this to them? Who conformed them to this standard? Thanks be to God, says Paul, that you who were once slaves of sin have been delivered over and conformed to this new standard of obedience. Ephesians 2.10 again. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is God who delivers us over and shapes us to this new standard. It is God who has done it. That is how the change comes about. Thanks be to God, says Paul, because there is no one else to thank. Man has done nothing. Man can do nothing. It is all of God. 
tell us later, he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. So that is the second principle. This is how the change is wrought. The third principle is about the evidence that this great change has taken place in us. Evidence. Again, we're talking about prescriptive versus descriptive. How can we know that we know that we are a Christian? All of us are at times confronted with this. How can we know for certain that the great change has taken place in us? It follows of necessity from what Paul has already said. This is not a matter of dispute. This is not a matter for debate. What is the proof that we have been delivered over and conformed by God to this new standard? What would this lead to? Well, the answer is it leads to obedience. You are obeying from the heart this standard of teaching. Get this. He says you're not obeying because you have to. You're not obeying because you ought to. You're not obeying because you're afraid not to. All those are legalism. He says you are obeying from the heart this standard of teaching to which you have been to which he's been committed. You're obeying because it is who you are now at your very core. This is who you are. The proof, the description of a Christian is a man who obeys from the heart this standard of teaching to which he has been committed. That is what these Roman Christians had done. Paul's whole argument depends on this. Sanctification begins at exactly the same time as justification. It is the proof that justification has occurred. Those who believe otherwise are the ones accusing him of teaching that we should continue in sin that grace may abound. Justification and sanctification cannot be separated. To believe, it in, it, to believe in its truest sense means not only to believe with the mind, but the heart and the will have to follow. It is obedience from the heart. Any man who has been justified has also been at least partially sanctified. Faith without works is dead. Okay, It's the proof. The essence of sin is, is disobedience to God. We all know, all know that. All right. That's the definition of sin, disobedience to God. The essence of faith, on the other hand, is the exact opposite, which is obedience. Christian is a willing slave, a happy slave, the bond slave of Jesus Christ, and his greatest desire is to glorify God in all that he says or does. Paul sums all this up for us in verse 18. <clears throat> he says, And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So he's worked out this argument in verse 16 and 17, and now brings us to a fundamental conclusion about the Christian man, in particular with regards again to the attack against his teaching that we started with in verse 1, that he was encouraging people to continue in sin. So it's sort of a parallel to verse 11 where he, get, he says that we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. 
Well, here he gives us the same truth, but this time continuing with his illustration about slavery. And just like in verse 11, where he follows his summary with an exhortation, he's going to do the same here in verse 19, which we're going to get to on next week, Lord willing. But he's, uh, for right now in verse 18, what we have is just a statement of facts. He's not exhorting us to do anything. He's not telling us to free ourselves from sin. He is telling us for the umpteenth time, my grandmother used to say umpteenth, that's the number you get to after when you're past the time she's ordained to fool, fool around with you, you know. Just means a huge number for doing, you know, biblical analogies. Umpteenth time. This is the umpteenth time that Paul is telling us that we are free from sin. If you go back and read through the through the last two chapters, you will see that this is the umpteenth time that he's telling us that we are free from sin. Reminding us once again of our position as a Christian. The truth about all Christians is that we are freed from sin. Now again, this is not sinless perfection. Again, we are not free from our sinful nature. And again, we are not free from temptations. None of these. We are free from the power of sin to reign over us and to ever again separate us from God in Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin. Sin can only get to us in as much as we allow it to. We're no longer slaves to sin. We are now slaves to righteousness. Here then is one of the most important statements that is true of us as Christians. The very fact that we believe the gospel at all is proof that this is true of us. Again, remember that the main thesis from chapter 5 to chapter 8, so we went over this when we started this whole section in chapter 5. The main thesis of chapters 5 through 8 is the assurance of salvation. Okay, This is our assurance no man can believe the gospel of Christ while he is a slave to sin. It is impossible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Lost men cannot believe. So the very fact that a man believes the gospel is proof that he has been freed from sin. That is the argument of this whole chapter. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Not only become slaves, he says we have been enslaved. This is not morality. This is holiness. This is the original righteousness that God gave man in the very beginning. We as Christians are enslaved to righteousness. This does not mean that we admire righteousness. It does not mean that we are attempting to be righteous does not mean that we are attempting to practice righteousness in our daily lives. So it includes all of those, but it's a whole lot more than that. 
He says, we are slaves to righteousness. We are under the power and control and the influence of righteousness. We do what righteousness tells us to do. From the moment of our regeneration, we are enslaved to righteousness. Our sanctification begins at the moment of our justification. There is no such thing as a man who is justified but not at all sanctified. It is utterly impossible. God does not work like that. Ezekiel 36:26. I imagine all of you know this one by heart. He says, I will take out your heart of stone, and I will replace it with a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God says, I will, I will, I will, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And if he hasn't done that, you aren't. It's as simple as that. There's some serious doctrine here that the translation doesn't, translation doesn't lend itself to, so we're going to finish with this. He says, having been set free from sin. How was it? How did we get there? How did we get to that point? How, how were we enslaved to sin in the first place? We were placed there by our federal head, Adam. We were enslaved to sin by Adam. We did not put ourselves there, even though we soon enough proved that we deserved to be there. It didn't take long for us to do that. But we were enslaved by another into that realm of sin because he was our federal head. We went right along with him. Likewise, we have, been, we have become slaves, translated, we have been enslaved to righteousness. We did not enslave, enslave ourselves to righteousness. We did not enslave ourselves to righteousness. Some might read our lesson today and from last week and think that just because of our belief and obedience, that's how we got here, because of our belief and our obedience. Nothing could be further from the truth. Our belief did not come from us. It is a gift. Our enslavement to righteousness did not come from us or from anything we have done or said or thought. We were placed there when we were placed into Christ. When we were baptized, placed into Christ, it is our union with Christ that enslaves us to righteousness. How does this enslavement happen? The same way our baptism into Christ happens. We are placed there by God's Holy Spirit. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Salvation is all of God. And being placed into Christ not only brings about our justification, it also brings about our sanctification. And you cannot have one without the other. And so, it is utterly impossible that any true Christian would ever believe, much less practice, that they could continue in sin that grace may abound. Let's pray.